Hi everyone, I'm Frank Rock and welcome to the From the Hack podcast for week 6 of the 2017-2018 curling season. On this week's episode, we recap the Tour Challenge, the first Grand Slam of the season, including interviews with winning skips Val Sweeting and Jason Gunlogson. We continue our Road to Summerside series with skips Shannon Burchard and Mark Bice, who seems will compete at the pre-trials in November. And we have a feature interview with Marcel Rock, best known as a member of the Furby Four, who is now the national team coach in China after spending some time coaching Team Homan. All that and more this week, but first, Canadian musician and non-curler extraordinaire Jimmy Reed plays us into the podcast. Although it is still too early in the curling season to identify any trends or to gauge which teams are on form and which ones are struggling, the Tour Challenge, the first event in this season's Penty's Grand Slam of Curling, still provided a few interesting results. The fact that neither Team Homan nor Team Cooey qualified for the playoffs certainly raised some eyebrows, but both those teams started slowly last season, and Team Homan ended up winning a world championship, while Team Cooey came within one shot of winning their second consecutive briar. Other Tier 1 round-robin results of note included Team Wallstad of Norway going undefeated in arguably the toughest pool on the men's side, the performance of Team Simmons going 3-1 in their first event as a team, and Team Pets going undefeated in a women's round-robin, continuing their strong play from the second half of last season. In the women's Tier 1 event, Team Sweden went undefeated in a round-robin and continued their strong play in the playoffs, defeating Team Englot in the quarters and Team Jones in the semis to set up a final against Team Hasselberg of Sweden, who reached the title game by defeating Team Tiranzoni in the quarters and Team Muirhead in the semis. Team Sweeting started slowly in the final, giving up a steal of three in the first, but clawed their way back and stole a point in the eighth end for a 6-5 victory. Val Sweeting joined from the hack to discuss her team's victory in Regina. Now Val, before we discuss the final, your team finished 4-0 during the round robin, but that included three games that went to an extra end. Uh, Now, ideally, I think most teams would like to have easy games in the round robin, but how important was it in your first event of the season to really get tested before you started the playoffs when things typically go up a notch or two? Yeah, I thought uh, we had some good round-robin games, really good competition, some great teams. So you expect the games to be close like that. And I think, yeah, it was really, really good for our team. We had, whether we had a hammer or didn't, we had, you know, we executed pretty well in those extra ends and forced uh, the hardest shot that we could, I thought. And that's all you can kind of hope for is just try and, leave a hard shot and sometimes the other skip will make it and sometimes they don't and yeah I, um, I thought it was really good really good team games there. I think it's fair to say that the final did not start the way you would have drawn it up giving up a steal of three in the first end against a team that had been playing well all week. Was the ice playing a little differently than it had earlier in the week? Was it simply that your team got off to a slow start or was it simply a case of team Hasselberg making their shots just a bit better than yours? I think it was all of the above. Um, the ice was a little bit different speed-wise than than it had been, but we were throwing hits, so I can't, I can't really use that excuse. Yeah, we just had, you know, a little bit unfortunate on Lori's runbacks. I mean, nor, like, she just missed them and left the shooter up there, whereas, you know, if she makes contact in the house or even just peels it, it was just one of those really unfortunate, like, she threw them well. It was just unlucky that they kind of just missed and then kind of same thing with mine um I, we missed the ones in the house and then I was left with 
left myself with a tough shot. And those in between, kind of like backline hack waiters, are kind of a guess in the first end. And I just didn't throw it very good. And yeah, you definitely don't want to spot the other team's three points in the first end when you, especially when you don't have hammer. But yeah, they they made a lot of great shots, a lot of great perfect come arounds, and and made it tricky for us. But um, yeah, I thought that we were a lot closer in the first half of that game we were just just missed just missing shots like so we couldn't couldn't have been any closer so yeah at one point that's when I finally just said yeah we like we made a double uh, can you tell me a little bit about the sixth end it certainly looked like they had you in some trouble and your team then made a couple of big shots late in the end to score your three and tie the game well, Dana made a nice kind of come around setup shot on her second one and uh it, which kind of set that up and left them kind of grouped in the middle, and then Lori made a really nice uh, that come-around nose hit on her second one as well. And we were still kind of looking like we were in trouble because they had three kind of clumped together there on my first one. And I said, you know what, like, we got to score to have a chance here. So our main goal was just to open it up and make sure that we can score, but luckily we kind of left it in a position where she couldn't remove both of ours because I think it would have jammed. Yeah, then just kind of got fortunate that her draw under curled and left that shot. So, yeah, I just kind of stayed patient. And then, yeah, the girls swept that last one really well to keep my shooter around. I think most players would rather win on a shot made than on a miss by your opponent. But take us into the eighth end and what you were trying to do in order to give Anna Hasselberg as difficult a shot as possible for the win. Yeah, we kind of discussed before that end the path that we wanted to leave her because she had thrown that intern draw in six a couple times. So if we had the option, we wanted to try and force her to the other side because not that, like, it's just because she had just thrown her intern and we hadn't played that other side for a while. So we just thought it would be harder to leave her that side. Um, and as the end was shaping up, that's kind of how it was forming. And then on mine, I thought, I was just a little too deep and overcurled. I thought she'd take a run at that double, and but because that side was such a guess, I think that's why she tried the draw first. And fortunately, it just slipped behind the tee line. And then the girls, yeah, managed my last one perfectly. And I, ideally, I wanted to be top button, but um, it worked out well where it went. And yeah, then we just kind of held our breath from there. After the game in an interview you gave, you mentioned the fact that your team is following the quote-unquote process this season, which seems to be a buzzword with curling teams these days. I'm assuming that in most cases, the process culminates with a gold medal at the Winter Olympics. But I'm wondering, without necessarily getting into the nitty-gritty, what are some of the things your team is focusing on early in the season leading up to the trials in Ottawa? I think that, um, you know, the technical part of the game, make sure that we're throwing it well, throwing it consistently so that we can get the most out of every shot and then also our team communication I think is a big thing um, managing shots judging them that kind of thing just to again make sure that we're getting the most out of everything and uh, I, I think our team did a really good job of supporting each other this week uh, there were some kind of ups and downs and and I think that we handled them really well so we'll definitely be kind of focusing on that. Team Gushu should probably never have gotten out of their quarterfinal against Team Laycock in the men's Tier 1 playoffs, but managed to pull out a victory by stealing two points in the extra end for the victory, and followed that up with a win over Team Jacobs in the semis. 
In the final, they would play an impressive Team Wallstad of Norway, who maintained their form from the round robin while defeating Team Simmons in the quarterfinal and the number one ranked Team Adin in the semis. Team Gushu's experience in big games was obvious from the start of the final when they kept the young Norwegians under constant pressure, taking an early 5-0 lead and cruising to a 9-1 victory. It was the fifth Grand Slam for Team Gushu in the past two seasons. The women's Tier 2 field was stacked with teams that have impressive pedigrees, and those teams certainly played well in the round robin, with Team Anderson, Sidrova, Sinclair, Felcher, and Carey all finishing at 3-1. Team Anderson, who won the inaugural Tour Challenge Tier 2 event in 2015, defeated Team Silver Nagel of Saskatchewan in the quarters and two-time world champions Team Felcher in the semis to set up an intriguing final against Team Carey, the 2016 Scottish champions playing with their new third, Kathy Overton-Clapham. Team Carey reached the final by defeating Team Rock in the quarters and Team Sinclair of the U.S. in the semi. In a tightly contested championship game, Team Anderson took advantage of a three-ender late in the game to secure a 7-4 victory. The men's Tier 2 event saw 2017 Alberta champions Team Botcher go undefeated in the round robin, while Team Height and Team DeConnick Smith of Saskatchewan both took advantage of their invitations as regional representatives in the event to go 3-1 in the round robin and qualify for the playoffs. In the men's Tier 2 playoffs, Team Gunlockson of Winnipeg defeated both Team Height and Team DeConnick Smith on their way to the championship game, where they met Team Libran also of Winnipeg, who defeated Team Liu of China in the quarters and Team Botcher of Edmonton in the semis. Team Libran seemed to take control midway through the final, but Team Gunlockson fought their way back for an 8-7 victory. Jason Gunlockson joined us following his team's big win. Jason, obviously an important victory for you guys this weekend. Not only did you win the Tier 2 Grand Slam, but you also earned a place in the Masters Grand Slam next month. Was there a specific moment during the event when you started to feel like your team might be able to make a run? We were seated number one going in, so I guess we thought from the beginning we'd have a chance. But uh, when we um, got through to the playoffs, we, you know, really knew it was in front of us. We were playing very well. Um, you know, we kind of thrall through the lineup. We were playing as well as anybody, and we thought that uh, we'd have a good shot at it. Your team got beat pretty good in your last round robin game by Team Brown of the U.S. Now, I realize that by then you'd qualified, and perhaps the focus was not quite what it would have been in an elimination game, but I'm wondering if the loss served as a bit of a reminder to your team that there was still a lot of work to be done. Yeah, I mean, I think it was a, it was an interesting game. Like you said, having known that we had qualified already, it kind of was a, you know, maybe we had a little bit of a letdown, but I think, I think that we just were... Like, the three of the four guys that I'm playing with have played with each other for a few years. So we're still amalgamating a little bit of systems between things that I want to bring in and things that they're kind of got established. And I think we, we kind of had some breakdowns against Brown, and we really used that as a great opportunity. Sometimes you just you don't make improvements until you lose, you know, and then we, with that we were able to improve a few things and really come out strong in the playoffs. Your team gave up a four-ender in the fifth end of the final, but bounced right back to get a three of your own, which gave you the lead. Giving up a four could have been deflating. What was the discussion like between the fifth and sixth end between you and the guys? We really just played a pretty good end, as funny as it sounds when uh, you give up four. We didn't play the type of end we wanted to, but um, we played pretty good, and Richie made a fantastic shot and then on his last, and Willie on his first. They, they just made two unreal like run back double stick everything perfect like just phenomenal shots and I mean like I said we didn't want to play a bunch of rocks and play but once we were we played pretty well so I don't think there was a huge change it was like we're gonna win this game somehow I'm not sure how yet but uh we just came back with that in mind and the sixth end kind of they were playing in really well and it looked like we were going to be in trouble again and the guys just kept fighting we got one kind of half missed and boom three 
Sportsnet showed a highlight of your last rock, and there was a lot of sweeping and yelling going on. Were you concerned of being a little light? I don't think we were as concerned about weight as line. It was a spot that had very large curls, and I just wasn't quite as sharp as I wanted to. I, I don't think we were ever concerned about it coming up too light. I mean, obviously, they had to sweep all the way, but it was more, as soon as we got by the guard, we were... It's time to celebrate. And finally, Jason, you played two events in the lead-up to the Tour Challenge. While some teams had yet to play this season, how much of an advantage was that to your team in this particular slam? Yeah, I think it goes both ways. I mean, we're playing the third week in a row, which usually don't play as well because you're a little bit fatigued. So, I mean, I think that that was a big fight. But the slow format early, I think, let us play into it, and then we kind of went on adrenaline in the playoffs. So, I mean, right now we really need a break, and, you know, we got that coming up, so that's good. But on the other hand, like you say, I mean, you're just a couple weeks in and maybe a little bit sharper. Most of the Tier 2 teams had played one game, one event before. So, you know, I think we're a pretty similar uh, thought, but it'll be nice to have a break now. Another action this weekend at the Biosteel Oakville Fall Classic. Team Bruce Mount of Scotland and Team Changmin Kim of Korea met in the final for the second consecutive week, with the 2016 World Junior Champions from Edinburgh defeating their Korean opponents again, this time by a score of 4-3 in an extra end. In the women's final, Team Vasilyeva, playing without their regular skip Victoria Moiseva, defeated Team Froud of Ontario by a score of 6-5. It was an impressive weekend for Team Froud, who went into the event ranked 120th in the world and went undefeated until losing to the Russian team in the final. At the Oberstdorf International Mixed Doubles event in Germany, the Czech team of Zuzana Haikova and Tomasz Paul, one of the pre-event favorites, defeated the Swiss team of Daniela Rupp and Kevin Wunderlin by a score of 9-3 in the final. There were two junior events on the weekend. At the Curlers Corner Junior Bondspiel in Calgary, Karsten Sturmey and his team from Edmonton won the junior men's event by defeating Team Cole of Calgary by a score of 6-5 in the final. The Sturmey sweep was completed when Selena Sturmey and her team from Edmonton defeated Catherine Lapine and her team from Calgary by a score of 5-3 in the junior women's final. Meanwhile, the Parksville BC Junior event saw a couple of well-known junior teams from BC walk away with the titles. In the men's event, reigning Canadian junior champions Team Tardy of Langley defeated Team McCready of New Westminster by a score of 3-2. Meanwhile, Sarah Daniels of Delta BC, a silver medalist at the 2016 Canadian Junior Championships, won a junior women's event by defeating Sierra Fisher and her team from Kamloops by a score of 5-4 in the final. It's official. The 2017-2018 curling season is now officially in full grind mode, as just about all the world's top teams have made their season debuts and the World Curling Tour schedule gets very busy. This week, there are two events on the men's tour, headlined by the AMJ Campbell Shorty Jenkins Classic, and there are three events on the women's tour, headlined by the HDF Insurance Shootout in Edmonton. The AMJ Campbell Shorty Jenkins Classic welcomes another excellent men's field this season, including 13 of the top 20 teams in the world. Team Koei will not be in Cornwall to defend their title, but past champions such as Brad Gushu, Brad Jacobs, John Epping, and Glenn Howard will be on hand to battle the likes of Team McCune, Team Adine, Team Walsrud, and Team Schuster for the title. The women's event at the Shorty Jenkins will be headlined by Team Tiranzonia of Switzerland and Team Flaxi of Ontario, along with reigning U.S. champions Team Sinclair and Team McCarvel of Thunder Bay making their season debut. Meanwhile, at the HDF Insurance Shootout, a strong international contingent makes its way to Edmonton, including Team Hasselberg of Sweden, Team Muirhead of Scotland, Team Pets of Switzerland, Team Wang of China, and Team Sidrova of Russia, who all competed at the 2017 World Championships. They will be joined by Alberta-based teams such as Team Sweeting, coming off their victory at the Tour Challenge, as well as Team Kerry, Team Clybrick, and Team Rock.
The other event on the schedule in Week 6 is the King Cashpiel in Maple Ridge, B.C. The men's field has a strong British Columbia flavor, headlined by the defending champions and hometown favorites, Team Juanis, along with former champions at the event, Team Gale of Kelowna, and 2017 Canadian Junior Champions, Team Tardy of Langley. Carla Thompson and her team from Kamloops will look to defend their title in the women's event and will be challenged by past champions Team Gushalak of New Westminster and Team Brown of Kamloops. And last but certainly not least, there are two junior events on the World Curling Tour schedule for this week, headlined by the Stucells Junior Men's and Junior Women's Tankers in Toronto, along with the Can-Am MJCT Spiel in Grand Forks, North Dakota. It's time for this week's Fresh Pebble, your news and notes from the world of curling. In Europe... The 6th Annual World Curling Congress will take place this week in Bled, Slovenia. Among the key topics to be discussed during the Congress is a possible increase in the number of teams at the World Men's and Women's Championships, a pre-qualifier for the 2021 Olympic qualification event, a change to the free guard zone rule, increasing thinking time in mixed doubles, and changing the page playoff system to a new 16 playoff system. In Pacific Asia, Japan held a women's Olympic trials on the weekend with Team Fujisawa of Kitami facing Team Matsumura of Kurosawa in a best-of-five series with the winning team qualifying for Pyeongchang. The two teams split the first two games, but then Team Fujisawa won both the third and fourth games to take the series 3-1 and secure a spot in the Olympics. In the U.S., USA Curling is currently looking for volunteers for the Ford Men's World Championships taking place in Las Vegas from March 31st to April 8th, 2018. For more information and to fill out a volunteer application form, please visit the USA Curling website. Our Road to Summerside series, in which we feature the teams that will participate in the 2017 Canadian Olympic pre-trials, continues this week. Our first guest is Shannon Burchard of Winnipeg, the skip of the 34th ranked team in the world, who is also a two-time silver medalist at the Canadian Juniors. Shannon, there are some in our audience that may not know much about you and your team. Can you tell us a little bit about your curling background and perhaps tell us a little bit more about each member of your team? As a team, we've played this will be our fourth um year playing together collectively so we actually played for one year in juniors and then the other girls all aged i played for another two years and then i joined back up with them and have played with them ever since so in 2013 we were the um canadian junior civil medalists um nicole and shana they have actually played together since they were about 14 years old so lots of history there and Mariah and I actually played together uh, in 2012 in juniors and actually lost the Canadian final that year as well. So that's a bit of our claim to fame. In most recent years, we have placed third and fourth at, at the Scotties, the Manitoba Scotties. And so, yeah, just hope and improve on, upon that year to year. Now, I understand that the goal of every team that has qualified for the pre-trials or the trials is ultimately to qualify for Pyeongchang. That being said, I'm wondering what would be an acceptable result for your team, and outside of winning, what are you hoping to gain most from your experience at the pre-trials? Um, you know what? I think our main goal is to actually qualify for one of the two spots um, left for, in the Olympic trials. Obviously, any we are going to be taking it game by game, and uh, we'll be soaking up all of the experience um, that we get in PEI, no matter what the result. But our ultimate main goal is to go on to the Olympic trials and um, hopefully perform well if we get there. Uh, We know that we're going to be a little bit of a dark horse coming through just because we are 
uh, lower ranked than some of the other teams, but I think if we play well, we are we can be just as competitive as, as the best of them. What is your approach for your team heading into the pre-trials? Are you playing several events to get as many reps in as possible, or are you playing a more limited schedule in order to be fresher come the pre-trials and hope you are peaking when you get to Summerside? Uh, we're actually playing a little bit more than we have in the past, and that's just to ensure that we get enough games under our belt to really you know, build the momentum and get uh, our confidence up before the pre-trials. We also, our goals for the season also stand beyond just the pre-trials. We want to be um, really um, improving our rankings so we can possibly start qualifying for Grand Slams and obviously want to still do well at the Manitoba Scottish when that rolls around. So did add quite a few, or not quite a few, but probably about two or three more events to our schedule than we had in past years. You and many other teams ranked in the 20s or 30s in the world are all trying to make that leap into the top 15, which means invites to the Grand Slams, etc. At this point in your progression as curlers and as a team, what areas are you focusing on to help you get over that next hump in the standings? I think a couple of things that we need to work on and improve on, it would be just consistency, um, resiliency, and really focusing on um, recovery and you know not burning ourselves out. Uh, a lot of the times with bond seals, you get, uh, get whether it's a round robin or just regular draw format. Um, by the time you get to the playoffs, you're, you've played maybe possibly five or six games, right? And at that point, you're a little bit exhausted. And, you know, it's just keeping that momentum going in through the playoffs because we find, or in the past years, we've qualified for a lot of events, but um, we didn't win any events last year, I don't believe. And that's just something that we want to improve upon this year. And finally, Shannon, a two-part question for you. The first part of the question is, what's your fondest Olympic memory since you've been watching them on TV or if you got a chance to go see them live in Vancouver seven years ago? And the second part of the question is, what would it mean for you to someday represent Canada at the Olympic Games? The best Olympic moment for me was probably watching, I would say, Kevin Martin win the gold medal in when was that, 2010 in Vancouver? That was just amazing to watch. They were just so dominant all week. Um, they had been um, a favorite team to watch in the previous years leading up to the Olympics. And um, it's just really something to see a team that put so much work into their craft finally, you know, win the gold. And, and um, it would mean, honestly, the world to me if I was ever to compete at that level win a gold medal it's been a dream of mine since I was probably about 12 years old and started competitively curling so uh, it's definitely something we're working towards and and I mean fingers crossed something like that can happen to us this year our second guest this week on the road to Summerside is veteran Mark Bice of Sarnia, Ontario, skip of the 31st ranked team in the world and a veteran of the pre-trials process, having played third for a team skipped by Greg Balson at the 2013 Olympic pre-trials. Mark, there are some in our audience that might not be familiar with you and your team. Can you tell us a little bit about your curling background and perhaps tell us a little bit about your team? I guess I personally, I was uh, I lost the Canadian Junior Finals back in 2005 and then uh, men's have been around for obviously straight out of juniors but uh, I guess highlights being uh, we were at the Briar and uh, a few years ago with uh, Greg Balston in 2014 for Ontario and then we were also in the uh, pre-trials last time and uh, lost out in the last game of the uh, C qualifier. 
As you mentioned, you and a few members of your team participated in the 2013 Olympic pre-trials. What did you learn in 2013 that will help you better prepare for the 2017 pre-trials? Just uh, kind of how to deal with the long week because it's spread out over a week, but the games are, well, lots of time in between games. So I guess now that uh, it's a round robin this time, we'll be able to know exactly when our times, our game times are. But yeah, just uh, preparing and spending the time in between properly. And in terms of the other teams, we've played most of them before, so just a matter of uh, being able to perform well. But uh, we know what we have to do. We need to play our best if we uh, hope to do anything. But uh, we have uh, confidence that we can do it, so we're going to give it our all. There seems to be two different approaches for teams that have qualified for either the pre-trials or the trials. Some of them are playing several events to get as many reps in as possible, while others are playing a more limited schedule in order to be fresher and more rested going into the pre-trials or the trials. Uh, What is going to be the approach for your team? Are you going to be playing more events than usual, or are you going to play less events than usual in the hope of being more rested and refreshed once you get to Summerside? We are definitely going a lighter schedule. I think last time we did play a bit more. I think when it comes down to it, we need to be in good shape and rested. And unfortunately, I guess, or fortunately, our family lives are a little busier now with work. And almost uh, most of us have kids now. So it's uh, a little trickier to uh, go too heavy into a uh, busy spieling season. But, uh, yeah, we're only going to actually play in three events before the actual pre-trials and hope that uh, hopefully we can uh, ramp up and – be on our best at that point. What will you and your team be focusing on entering the pre-trials that you believe will give you the best chance of running one of those two spots into the trials? Well, obviously consistency, but I think it, for us it comes down to uh, kind of being in lighthearted. Uh, we like to have fun and joke around. So, like, I find when we try to take things too uh, too seriously or put too much pressure on ourselves, we don't perform as well normally. So it'll just be a matter of uh, going out there, being light, feeling good and having fun, but that's uh, kind of where we uh, perform best. And finally, Mark, a two-part question. First, what's your fondest memory from having watched the Olympics either live or on TV? And two, what would it mean for you to represent Canada at the Olympic Games in Pyeongchang? There's plenty of uh, Olympic memories. I've actually, I actually really enjoyed the uh, Summer Olympics last time, which I normally don't enjoy as much, but watching uh, the track events were a lot of fun, both with uh, DeGrasse and uh, Darren Drew, and I actually uh, really got into those. As for myself, uh, reaching the Olympics, it would obviously be just like a dream come true, so it's something I think everyone dreams of growing up, so I doubt anyone hasn't uh, dreamed about that that's going to this event. Our final guest this week is Marcel Rock, the national team coach for China, best remembered as a member of the Furby 4 that won three world championships and four briars in the early 2000s. Rock joined us to discuss the sport of curling in China, his time as coach for Team Homan, and he also shares some thoughts on what steps need to be taken to help grow the sport internationally. Marcel, the story about you going to coach in China the first time around has been well documented, but what was it that enticed you to leave a pretty good coaching situation in Canada to return to China a second time around? I guess what brought me there the most was the fact that uh, a couple of the players that I'd worked with going into Sochi for that year or those 10 months had had kind of retired and so they had they had actually reached out to me the 
to, to see if, if uh, I could come back. If I could, then they would come out of retirement and try to try to get ready again for another goal. So without uh, saying too much, they had suggested that if I wasn't coaching, they weren't going to come back. So uh, I guess when I get involved with a team, I, I kind of am all in, and that team kind of becomes like family. So it was more more along the lines of uh, family asking for help. And, and uh, I feel the same way for Holman team because I worked with them for a couple of years so it was actually a difficult decision uh, but uh, you know again I think uh, for the benefit of the game of curling I think it was uh, it was a good decision to to try and help you know curling grow in China as well. Can you provide some perspective on how much attention and support curling receives in China? Well I'm not actually 100% sure how to answer that question all I can tell you is like when we played in Sochi and we uh, lost the semifinals to Brad's team, there was 765 million viewers in China. And I'll repeat that, 765 million viewers in China that got up in the middle of the night to watch a curling game that they really didn't understand. So when you, when you, when you hear those numbers, it's staggering. And, you know, is the sport there yet in China? No, but is it growing? Yeah, there's, 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 there's good evidence of growth. And with uh, 2022 being the uh, the uh, awarded to Beijing for the Winter Olympics, I believe that um, the government is spending a lot of money on infrastructure, which they didn't have before. So first of all, if they build the clubs, then uh, maybe they'll be able to expose the people more to it and, and increase the numbers of participants playing this wonderful game. What is your approach for the Chinese Federation? Are they focused on building a sport at the local level and letting teams from different regions compete for the national championships the way we do it in Canada and in the United States? Or are they more focused on bringing their best curlers together and creating quote-unquote super teams in the hope that they can then compete at the elite level internationally? I think you've answered the question just by by asking it the way you have. Uh, I think they're looking at doing everything, at doing all of that. Uh, we have to remember that they've only been at this game since 2000. So, so you, you, you give a nation 16 years, and 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 they're going through. You know, back then they invested in in a small number of players, and and really focused on the development of those teams. Moving forward and coming forward this year, and talking to them about what their requirements are for 2022 became evident that they didn't have they didn't put enough time into developing other whether it was junior ranks or, or or getting experience to other players so that they could uh, potentially succeed uh, once these other teams either retire like they did or or some leave, some stay. So so I was able to suggest a, a blended concept. They are trying to get to the Canadian model where teams played up, play off. But there's a gap between these uh, teams that they've invested in over 15 years and teams that are fairly new. So this gap has to be closed, and uh, and there's other challenges as well because there's uh, you know locals, uh, I guess you could call them curling clubs, but but it's more regional, uh, and you have the regional teams competing against each other, and unfortunately they don't have the depth in numbers in order to have the strongest team for China out of one local. So I was able to convince them this year that I think we need to blend players from all over China to try and form teams and develop those teams and then allow those teams to compete against each other to represent. But, uh, you know, it's it's so young here that they're, they're kind of just working their way through and, and they're doing everything.
doing a good job looking at the gaps that they have and trying to address those. To summarize then, there remains a lot of work to do, but you seem to feel like the Chinese Federation is on the right path, right? Like I said, we were able to run a camp this year. Uh, we had 160 applicants. I made it so that they had to register themselves, not that the bosses were making them or forcing them. It has to be, you know, young players that are interested and have a passion and want to. And uh, out of 160 applicants, uh, we selected 80. And then we moved through a bunch of processes in order to uh, in order to have them uh, come to this point where we have more teams now to expose to uh, competition and to prepare. In speaking of several teams in Canada, there seems to be two different approaches as they prepare for the pre-trials or trials. Some teams are playing a heavy schedule and trying to get as many games in as possible against good competition, while others are playing relaxed schedules so that they can be fresh and rested when the pre-trials and or the trials start. What approach are you using with the Chinese teams that will be representing China in both the Pacific Asia Championships and, more importantly, will represent China at the Olympic qualifying event in the Czech Republic in early December? It's it's both of those. I mean, uh, all the Canadian teams are going through the exact same thing right now, and all the world teams are doing the same thing. You're trying to you're trying to decide how to get peak performance at the right time. So in our case, December 5th to the 10th is the OQE Olympic qualifying event. I mean, that's obviously my number one priority with both men's and women's teams because they haven't qualified. Getting to these events and playing these big games and bigger pressure situations are are required in order to compete at the highest level, whether it be a Worlds or an Olympics. Uh, playing those big games to get into finals or semifinals uh, give give these players experiences that uh, you need to. Uh, for example, you know we played the Asian Winter Game Finals last February and uh, and ended up winning two golds, but all of those players had, you know, some pretty big nerves, uh, nervousness, uh, excitement, anxious, and all those uh, feelings you only get when you get into the big events and the events that uh, that mean something. So all of these big event uh, exposures are a good thing. Elite curling teams are increasingly investing time and energy on the mental side of the sport. Now, it's been reported that aside from starting a family, part of the reason why 2009 world champion skip Bing Yu Wang left curling for a while was because she got a little burned out due in part to all the traveling and competing she did during her team's rise to the top of the women's game. My question is whether the Chinese Federation has integrated sports psychologists into the mix the way they have in Canada, the U.S. and other countries. We're doing everything. We're covering everything. I'm covering the same thing I would with with any other team, which means that everything is looked at. Now, from your perspective, as someone who sees Bing Yu Wang on a regular basis at practices and in events, uh, how close is she to being back to the uh, type of player uh, that she showed from 2008 to uh, 2012? Well, there's such a new team, right? I mean, she had a, she has her long-term lead playing third. She has a new lead and then a new second from, uh, like, same second, but a new second from her high performance team so how do i answer it i think there was some doubt last year coming in as to what she wanted to do but i think right now we're seeing being you know this summer with some conversations and and some good discussions re- realize that she may as well if she's going to spend the time she may as well fully fully invest herself and i think that's what we've seen uh maybe last year it was kind of a, a half foot in the door and i think she's now stepped into the room and and realizes that that okay, I'm here, so I have to give it my all. And I think that's what we're seeing. We're seeing uh, uh, Betty kind of decide that that she wants to give it her all. And and if that's enough, that's enough. And if it isn't, it isn't. And she'll she'll be satisfied. So I think we're seeing 
we're seeing uh, a little bit of a different Betty, and and it's a, it's a good thing for her. I'm, re- I'm really proud for, proud of her. Many people seem to forget that Team Liu were very close to winning a bronze medal at the 2014 Olympics in Sochi. Do you anticipate that Team Liu will be able to leverage that Olympic experience when the team arrives in the Czech Republic for the Olympic qualification event in December? Well, I sure as heck hope so. I mean, these guys have worked hard, and not that every other country doesn't, but I mean, they got a little bit robbed last time around, and and they took a they took a couple of years off also. And anyone that takes time off from from a game knows that a comeback is not easy. So last year we were slow starting. You know, we really didn't get into our groove till late December and started qualifying everywhere at all the big events and doing what we needed to do. And and in the worlds this year, finishing fifth, we we had a couple of. Uh, you know, a couple of issues where we lost some games against uh, Italy and Germany that, you know, I felt we 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 were in a position to do better than that. So that puts us into top uh, three or four position if we take care of those two games. And and do I think that he's on a trajectory to, to come back to the right place? Yes, I do. Um, unfortunately, these Olympic trials are no different than the Canadian ones. Uh, granted, the, the, the depth of field is not... Uh, quite the same, but there's still some quality teams there that can play really good curling. So, if you don't uh, if you don't get there prepared mentally and and are physically ready and are throwing the rock and executing fairly well, you could be in trouble in a hurry in that event. So, you know, I'm really hoping that uh, that we continue on the course of uh, that we are and and that we can uh, succeed in uh, and uh, go back to to the Olympics, not just for Team Liu, but I'm also for excitement in the sport for lead up to 2022 in China. I mean, as I said, I'm Canadian. I'm as proud of a Canadian as anyone is of their own country. So why am I doing this for this for the sport of curling? And uh, if we can get some excitement going in China for their teams, seeing uh, teams succeed, but that, you know, and, and for me that doesn't just mean winning gold. Uh, it's a different uh, mindset that I have working with the working with the Chinese as I did as a Canadian player where you feel you have to win gold. So here it's just a good performance and a good showing will lead enough excitement uh, in their country for our sport to continue to gain momentum and and uh, support in, in their country. Before returning to China to coach, you spent some time as a coach for Team Homan. How difficult was it for you to leave the top-ranked team in women's curling midway through their Olympic cycle? I can honestly say it was the hardest decision of, uh, of my curling life. Uh, both as a coach and a player. Uh, like I said to you before, I invest in, in teams as if they're family. And how close is Rachel to our family? Well, she lived in our house for six months last year. So, or the the last year we uh, we were together. So it was a very difficult decision. And I had a meeting with Rachel before I accepted. And I we talked about it. And, uh, you know, she supported whatever I decided. And I had to talk to my family about it because my kids are very close to her. And, and so... I didn't want to feel like I was walking out on family. Having said that, I explained to her that they were my first family and that they needed more help from me than Rachel needed from me. And so Rachel's team is is poised right now and, and has positioned themselves right now with the support that I felt they, they needed most anyways. So their, their, their coach right now is, is someone who's very important for them as a team and as individuals. And so I felt that that I wouldn't be letting them down so much. Uh, obviously, I need my head examined to walk away from the number one team in the world. But uh, having said that, I, I I can honestly say I've always done everything in my after curling career as a player to benefit the sport of curling for 
for everyone and not just Canadians, but globally. And finally, Marcel, you left competitive curling before the Grand Slams really hit their stride and became as big as they are now. How much would you have enjoyed playing in this era and how different is a game now than it was back in the early 2000s? Well, we did get the opportunity to get into those things, uh, you know, right at the beginning of the, the thing. Uh, as much as there was a team band for the Canadian Curling Association, there was also a team band on Team Furby for the Slams. So we were in there when Martin was in there and Howard was in there and and uh, Stoughton and all the guys with the, while they were in their glory days. So it, it was uh, as soon as we came back, we... we uh, we put our stamp on that those events uh, in a hurry as well, and and did our fair share of wins on a short term in a short amount of time. So, you know what? They're fantastic events, and and I see more of them coming. I mean, hopefully, uh, hopefully one day we can have a Grand Slam in China and 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 have uh, a big Grand Slam in Europe somewhere. And but in order for that to happen, we need to get uh, investment from different places other than just uh, Canadian uh, corporations. So again, I mean having these opportunities for these players to play all over. Now now we'll require people to sit down at the table from all areas and to actually put together a curling calendar that is in not in conflict with one another, but in, in a real systematic way so that all of these larger events and B-class events can still continue to uh, serve our sport as a developmental league, if you want to call it that, or developmental level and going into a, uh, the elite level and right to the top with the, with so so I mean there's room for all of it and it's all fantastic for our players and it's all fantastic for our sport. I just uh, we're running out of weekends, so I think now requires a time for all of the different people hosting uh, certain things, whether it's playdowns, whether it's Grand Slam, whether it's other bond spiels. Everyone sit down at the table and figure out hash out what what works. Uh, on a global scale now because I think there's so many so many of the teams that are that are playing in these things are coming from all over the world and and we're trying to go there so once these things continue to grow I think that it'll it will require people to sit down and try to build a schedule that's conducive to allowing you know smaller places uh like Oakville or um or or Shorty Bondsville that's that's really Canadiana uh, to succeed and continue to draw the best teams possible and, and still have weekends uh, uh, where there's two and three and four and five events, but layered so that everyone has an opportunity to try to draw, all, you know, as many of the good teams and all the good teams have as many opportunities to, to kind of find their way through and not kill events because, because of larger ones. that does it for this episode of the From the Hack podcast. My thanks to all of our guests. Join us next week for our second roundtable of the season. This time we are joined by World Curling Tour players and curling bloggers, John Cullen and Mike Forney. It should be a good one. In the meantime, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at From the Hack and also follow us on Facebook and Instagram and or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. I'm Frank Rock and this is From the Hack. <laughs>